on the Empire Podcast this week, we hope that reviewing Anna Karenina is a whole lot easier than saying Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina. Uh, and we peek behind the helmet and tell you what Dread is really like. And John Hillcoat and Nick Cave pop into the pod booth to tell us all about Lawless and Tom Hardy's cardigans. Uh, hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and this is the Empire Podcast, the podcast whose recording control desk broke down completely this week, which means this is coming to you live from an emergency bunker, not live, just off Oxford Street, or we finally pioneered that beaming podcast straight into your brain's technology that we've been working on for so long. There's only a slight chance of death, so don't worry about it. As ever, I'm joined by three of my colleagues who forgot to book themselves in for meetings when we were recording the podcast. First up is a woman who's quite simply the greatest movie-related O'Hara of all time, if you don't count Scarlet, that is, and Maureen, and Catherine, and David, and Paige, and Frank, and Rosella, and Mario, and Jenny, and other people I didn't get around to Googling. Still, give it up for Helen O'Hara. I am totally better than Scarlet O'Hara. I wear much smaller skirts, and don't, you know, faff about flouncing around, you know, for no reason. Okay, you sold, done. Yeah. Next up is the podcast's resident art house expert, a man who's never heard of Jeremy Renner, but he owns a Jeremy Renier box set. Push your glasses, please, further up your nose, <laughs> and welcome Phil Dissemlin. Who's Jeremy Renner? And uh, last but not least is a man who not only appears regularly on the podcast, but he actually edits it and makes us all sound so damn good on occasion. Please welcome a man who is an absolute cunt. Really great guy. And someone I appreciate, both as a friend and a colleague. It's Ali Plum. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm really well. Good, good. Really, really I'm happy. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. You are kind of like the Wizard of Oz of our podcast, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm behind a, a You are curtain. the man behind the curtain. Uh, okay, first things are always first, unless you're in a Quentin Tarantino movie, in which case they're second. Uh, and first things this week are... Your emails, your tweets, and your Facebook rants to us this week. No, no Facebook rants, but we do have an email. Uh, someone known only as Alex, could be a man, could be a woman, could be my niece, has asked, I was interested in what the Empire team thinks of The Wire. I've only ever heard passing mentions being made of it. Do you regard it as the best TV show of all time or overrated? Um, I think it's incredibly well-structured. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's just miraculous that they, they were able to build that five-season uh, five arc and make it all work and make it all sing as brilliantly as it did. I think the cast is amazing. I don't... It's not my favourite TV show of all time, though, is the problem. I think it's great, but I don't personally warm to it in the way that I warm to others, like, you know... Let me guess. Go ahead. The West Wing. Yes. Sex in the, the City. Yeah. Oh, no. no. Ew. <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Yeah, okay. And... The one show. Battlestar Galactica. The Battlestar Galactica. God. There we go. Uh, Phil, where do you stand on The Wire? I think The Wire is phenomenal. I I would love to have known what it would be like to have watched it in real time when it came out for the first time because what's interesting about it when I saw it like maybe three or four years ago is that it's kind of almost like a period piece, especially as it's so technologically focused. You know, like an update of the conversation in the way that it looks at surveillance, etc. And the technology, the burners and the those mobile phones, they're yeah. all kind of creaky and antediluvian when you start out with season one. And then by the end, you're kind of getting closer and closer to where we're at now, but still not really within range. So it's kind of, it, it must have been a whole different experience to see it as, as it went. It's one of those programs that's gained cachet well, not just down the, the years. Not just because of the technology, but I think there's something great about waiting for a TV show to finish and then just burning through it on on a box set, which is what I did with The Wire yeah. in about two weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But I'm going through a different experience in one with Breaking Bad, or I'm up to date in Breaking Bad, which I think is just as good as The Wire for different reasons. And we've got eight episodes left uh, starting next year, the final season, we're going to its final eight episodes. And I'm at the point where I'm going, I'm really tense. I don't know what's happening. I don't, I don't want any of these people to die with maybe some possible exceptions. I don't want anything bad to happen. And it's really, really tense. And, you know, and there's also going to be a point where I'm going to wake up one morning and there's going to be no more Breaking Bad. And I never really had that with The Wire. I did. Mm. I had it with The Wire at the end of the, end of the final season when it kind of gone, it's gone full circle. And you could imagine it could start again and take a different journey. Um, yeah, it was pretty it, sad yeah. it was really sad whereas with something like Battlestar Galactica which I also loved up until about halfway through season 3 I suddenly just it suddenly for me at least it just got quite ropey in the final season and I didn't really mind so much I know that I'm not the, I know that I'm you know not everyone agrees with that my all time favourite TV programme was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy but it's a slightly different thing I should say that um, when it comes to The Wire what I like most about it is that each season has its own for the most part angle or take mm. on what it wants to deal with be it education system in Baltimore or journalism which I think isn't quite the best one in the final season it wasn't afraid to not just repeat itself or give the fans what they want it said okay we're going to give you some of what you want but also going to give you something that we genuinely want to talk about and to be in that position and to do it that well mm. extraordinary uh, I think HBO should be very proud of that and they probably will be for the rest of time but in terms of comparing it to your favourite TV show or whatever I think that's kind of a mute point because um, for example Frasier or Seinfeld or mm. you know Friends or whatever you know Simpsons big comedy classics you can't compare them but I would also say they're some of my favourite TV shows of all time and with The Wire I would never go ooh I could murder season three's fourth episode right now <laughs> whereas when I go to you know season five of The Simpsons put on any episode and I'm like, did we used to have this conversation on the playground like have you seen season four of Mr. Ben it's <laughs> astonishing <laughs> this boy goes through the door spoiler and he's back in the medieval times you've got to get oh, the Blu-ray you told me that <laughs> the commentary is excellent uh, the Blu-ray of Mr. Ben that would be brilliant but it is it is spectacular television oh, season three of Chucklevision was so dark it's <laughs> <laughs> a real twist that was the season that was, that's when Barry became wow. an alcoholic say goodbye to all international listeners if you listen in different countries and you don't know what Chucklevision is or indeed who the Chuckle Brothers are Google them do yourself a favour I once was in um, I, I was driving through I wasn't in Beverly Hills but I was driving through Beverly Hills which a person at my credit rating I was just about allowed to do and I'm convinced that I saw a Chuckle Brother <laughs> walking down I thought it was Paul or Barry uh, walking down Rodeo Drive with uh, what can only be described as a dolly bird on his arm it was definitely in LA and it was a man with a, a mullet and a bad moustache and he looked if he wasn't Paul or Barry he was her long lost brother that's Kevin. the most it's, it's classic you're in, you're in the heart of, of Hollywood Tinseltown surrounded by it's probably Richard <laughs> Gere walking his dog you've got Cruz kind of out with rollerblades and you're like it's a chuckle brother oh my god, oh my god. it's god. Paul which one and or Barry this is the worst name drop I've ever heard. I mean, <laughs> I mean, wow. I thought I might have seen, but I'm not sure, Chuckle Brother. <laughs> it's quite lame, isn't it? Yeah, but if you see a Chuckle Brother in London, that's fine. But Rodeo Drive? So, Paul, Barry, if you're listening, if that was you, then please do uh, write in. So, in answer to the wire question, we once saw a Chuckle Brother, maybe. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, next we have an email from someone called Tony Parts Tuning. Seems like a bit of a strange surname. Anyway, let's see what he has to say. He says, Hi, sir. Thank you very much for your time. Attached is scooter racing tuning parts list. If you are interested, please contact us soonest. Helen, what do you think of that? I think it's spam, Chris. Mm. Oh. Did you also get an email saying need a massive member enhancement? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, okay, another genuine email question this time uh, from Cameron Waits, who says, having just watched the excellent Headhunters, and it is excellent, it is. and enjoyed a sterling performance, and it is sterling, by film journalist Sinova Makodi Lund as Diana. She's the tall, blonde bombshell who's married to the little fella in it. Um, <laughs> I forgot his name. <laughs> Roger. Remember? Roger, yes, but what's his name in real life? Um, oh. Uh, little, I knew it. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Off the cuff. I wondered if any of you film critic types have trodden the proverbial boards. If so, or indeed not, what would your dream role be? <laughs> well, Chris, you have been in films, haven't you? I have you? been in films. I uh, gave an award-winning performance as Drunk British Slob in Hostel Part 2. Uh-huh. Uh, and you can see me very, very briefly out of focus in the background as an extra who I like to call uh, a Scottish pimp called Muck Daddy, but <laughs> I gave him backstory uh, in Birkin Hair uh-huh. uh, in one shot. But anyway, it's, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've been in a film. That was horrible, though, because I, I, I dabbled in amateur dramatics at school and at university. I was an excellent uh, Reverend Hale in uh, first year university production of The Crucible. Ooh, your books uh, were weighted with authority, uh, weren't I they? I quit this court! That's the only line I can remember. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I was Fagin once in uh, Oliver at, at, at my uh, grammar school uh, where my accent feared between Cockney and some sort of horribly racist uh, East European uh, Polish guy which was just absolutely dis- disgraceful um, but yeah no uh, actually acting per se uh, on camera with someone who can actually do it is terrifying <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying even though all I was meant to do was like do a double take and I, it, honestly it's the worst double take if you watch the movie about 15 minutes in it's the worst double take since a pigeon from Moonraker it's absolutely <laughs> shocking what I did guys? something that wasn't really technically on set in a filming context but it was post Avatar and we got the chance to do motion capture work now, motion is a challenge for me, let alone like performance, <laughs> marrying it to some form of f- performance. So we did Aladdin star, but we've got like the um, the baubles attached, and that's not the technical term, is it? The baubles. The baubles. I was te- covered the, in the baubles. The, the technical- <laughs> they covered me in baubles. I didn't really want to go out there. The technical but term is ping realized. pong balls. Right, thank you. Ping pong balls. What I hadn't realised was that the producer John Landau was going to be watching most of the whole wetter sort of digital performance capture IT boffins were going to be everybody was going to be watching <laughs> we had to recreate a scene with Jeb Brophy who's one of the orcs in Lord of the Rings he's a really you know he's a solid act and a great performance capture. and I just I literally can't act my way out of a paper bag with the exit mark clearly uh, it was embarrassing as all hell I was just trying to imagine like we were being attacked by viper wolves and <laughs> I don't know I guess you'd call it sort of a Mike Lee turn I kind of mooched in the corner of the cabin <laughs> stroking my chin whilst poor Jed was trying to like <laughs> There's a Viper Wolf. Oh, hello, Viper Wolf. Would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah. Oh, tell me your problems. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. Golden. Ali, you, you're an exuberant type of chap. I have acted, but certainly not on set or near a camera or anything along those lines. I have performed as Basil in the uh, play adaptation at my school of The Pitch of Dorian Gray. If you don't know The Pitch of Dorian Gray, Basil is the effeminate, uh, weedy <laughs> one who's a painter who fancies men, well, but isn't gay, kind of. So that that was me. That was my highlight. <laughs> Put it this way. I was the sound guy. I shouldn't have been on stage. You are a sound guy. Uh, Helen, what about you? Well, my school used to have a drama festival every year, so we'd always did. put on plays every year and, and you had to kind of compete in those. I like that question, by the way. That was a good question. That was really good. Yeah. We didn't answer we the terrible about our dream roles, but uh, yeah, but there you go. Fire uh, Twitter, at DJSArt, asks, what's your favourite and worst movie death on screen? Uh, Helen. I have two favourites. 
if I'm allowed to be greedy. Yeah, go on. Um, one would be um, Spock in The Wrath of Khan. Oh, just one. heartbreaking every oh single gosh. time. Amazing death. And the second one would be Giovanni Ribisi in Saving Private Ryan, mm. which just gets me every mm. single time because he knows what's happening. They're all trying to fix him. He's the one who's supposed to be fixing them. Ugh, can't, mm. t- can't bear it. Adam Goldberg in Saving Private Ryan, his death is horrible. When he, yes, when he, so with slow, the, with, with the German, a knife. With the German those, soldier. Those are two of the hardest deaths And basically whispering at him, let it go, let it happen. And you're just, because you, oh. you can't help but put yourself in that guy's shoes. Go, what would that be? Because it, it subverts expectations, you mm. know, because so many times you've seen... Oh, I can't, that's an excruciating scene. Oh, Both horrible. of those actually are. Because you know they're kind of real as well. I mean, in a sense. Well, he popped it's, up in Friends It's afterwards. a realistic depiction of death in a way that movies don't always go. Both to. of them popped up in Friends afterwards. <gasps> That's weird. Friends is paradise? Is this what we've learned? <laughs> like, it's like Lost. It's, it's amazing. The one where Joy gets bayoneted is... <laughs> season nine is absolutely Wrong. cracking. What? Uh, Ali? The correct answer to this question is Hans Gruber in Die Hard. That is the correct answer to this question. Is it the correct answer? Well, it's his favourite, not best, so... It is my correct answer (laughs) to this question. Um, I would also include just about acceptable. Butch and Sundance are acceptable, I think. Yeah, we've never seen them die. They could could survive. so much. It's it's that freeze-frame ending, which you and I both love as a freeze-frame ending, but that is the freeze-frame ending. This question is interesting because there's so many different... They're kind of tackled in different ways, but in terms of, like, stuff people that you just want to die I kind of Richard <laughs> Gear at the end of Days of Heaven I just kind of I just had enough of him a little bit Frank wow. Nitti in The Untouchables and then there's a great payoff line which you also need for a good death where somebody's like have you seen Nitti he's in the car mm. yes that's, that's good that's good that's nice and it's also subverting because you think he's going one way then he suddenly turns and chucks him off the building yeah. and uh, that's a good death and Costner's got his got his balls out really there God. Which no one was expecting at that moment. I don't remember that. Was. Death. that was cut out of the final film. I believe he calls them the untouchables. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I shouldn't be laughing at that. Most um, death. That's an yeah, death. death. I like I like overblown OTT deaths. I like um John Malkovich's in Con Air when <laughs> Great Death. <laughs> he gets catapulted through the air off uh off a fire truck. Yeah. It lands <laughs> If it should kill him, goes through the electric wires. Goes through the electric wires and then lands on some sort of garbage disposal. What was it? It's almost like a heap. Yeah, it's like a it's like a guillotine kind of. It's like a thing that pounds cars. Yeah, it's a piston thing that pounds cars in In downtown Las Vegas. In downtown Las Vegas. <laughs> and then he gets his head pulped. Um, and another favourite death. These are just things that spring to my mind. They're not necessarily my favourite deaths, but I'm not a sociopath. I don't have a list. Uh, is and this is a spoiler warning. LA Confidential. Uh, Kevin Spacey. Uh, Jack Vincennes when he gets killed yes. by uh, uh, Dudley Smith halfway through. It's just a, it's a death I didn't see coming. I hadn't read the book. I didn't know that Jack Vincennes dies in a completely different fashion in the book. Obviously, and it, it surprised me. And mm. it's a great death scene. And his the look on his face as he stitches up his killer by saying Rollo Tomasi, knowing that that might lead to him being apprehended later on, is just beautiful. So that's my favourite death. If you're going over the top deaths, you've got to mention Tony Montana. And oh, it proves oh. that if you take enough cocaine, no one can kill you. Uh, Rhodes in Day of the Dead, uh, which is Joe Palato's character, the, the horrible bad guy at the end of Day of the Dead, who gets ripped apart by a group of zombies and, and as his intestines spill out on the floor, uh, he yells, Joe Gonham! And then dies, um, which is fantastic. I think from recent films, The Dark Knight's How About a Magic Trick is a beautiful Oh, that's death. a good one. Uh, worst movie deaths? I, I don't know if we should talk about worst movie deaths. I don't know. I think... I think all movie deaths are good and should be applauded. Uh, <laughs> wait, hang on. No, wait, that's, that's, that, <laughs> that's sounds, that sounds really dark. I, I'm still irritated by uh, Jack and Titanic. 
Leonardo DiCaprio. Because there's room. It's like, there's room on the mm. board, woman. But wouldn't it overbalance the board and no. be on? Someone actually genuinely went and worked this out. Really? Yeah. They don't there know what wood they the were using, or did they? Well, they, they recreated they it using the actual well, Titanic you probably, materials. You can probably actually, you know, look it up. In T2, which is another James Cameron film, obviously, Yes. the T-1000 gets frozen to death, just like Jack. And all they do is they just heat him up a bit, and he comes mm-hmm. back to life. Couldn't they have just done that with Jack? Just go down um, to the bottom of the ocean, find him. Right. <laughs> and heat him up. Um, where to start with this one? Um, oh. I think... Chris, I'll just we'll we'll have a chat later, uh-huh. and I'll maybe get out some biology textbooks. See, I didn't really do a biology; I was too busy singing, so I missed that sadly. Um, but that's that's my theory. I think it might be medically correct. Uh, at drunken midget asks, does it automatically ruin a movie when someone says there's a great twist because this becomes your focus? I would say yes, it does. I have an example to back it up. Um, I love No Way Out. Um, mm. starring Kevin Costner mm. and The Untouchables and um, I once sold it to a couple of my friends it was like they were staying over and I was like guys you got to see No Way Out it's amazing it's got a great twist and uh, in that voice yeah guys you've got to see this and they were like who are you and I passed Zozu and um, they they watched No Way Out and my, my, my mate Dave mate Dave figured it out in 10 minutes it's yeah. so weird that you should mention that because today I was watching Kevin Costner on the hard-hitting interview that is Inside the Actors Studio. <laughs> and he was talking about that exact thing, and he was saying, oh, you know, it was one of those softball... The next film that you did was No Way Out, which is amazing. Tell me how amazing it was, Kevin. And he said, yeah, I'm really, really proud of that film. It helped me in my career cross over into the mainstream, blah, blah, blah. But I was disappointed with a couple of things in it, and, and that was it. He said he was there were signposts in it about that. Yeah. Uh, and he was, you know, if he could go back and do it again, he would have fought to get those things taken out because he thought it was, you could pick it up. Well, I actually, knowing there was a twist in The Sixth Sense, guessed what it was. Mm. Um, but I don't think I would have had I not known. Yeah, I don't think it matters so much with The Sixth Sense because it's the journey, isn't it? Aww. It's all about the journey. With that. Uh, thanks for your questions. If yours didn't get asked, and I know that some didn't this week, uh, then do keep trying. There's always next week. It's also competition time. Last week's competition offered three listeners a chance to win the Expendables on Blu-ray, uh, plus an Expendables 2 t-shirt, which is presumably extra, 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 extra large, and an Expendables 2 bottle opener. Although if you like the Expendables, I imagine you can just open those things with your teeth. Uh, the ridiculously easy question was, what's the name of the state's character? And the answer was, of course, Lee Christmas. Congratulations to Hard Tandy, Jimmy Brown, and Jack Gregson for getting that one right, and shame on anyone who said... Lee National Dog Biscuit Appreciation Day, which is actually a real holiday. This week's competition's all about movie going, getting you guys out and seeing the movies. And we've teamed up with the lovely peeps at Picture House Cinemas to offer three pairs of tickets to any movie you like, as long as it's playing at a Picture House Cinema near you, of course. Uh, we can't build one near you. Uh, to win, answer the following ridiculously easy question What's the name of the Picture House Cinema in lovely old Brighton town? City, mm. technically. Is it, is it a city? With Hove, yeah. They get snippy if you call it a town. Do they? Mm. Um, you may have to Google that one. Uh, unless, of course, you live in Brighton or work at the cinema in question or just know lots of stuff about British cinemas. Like a, like a weirdo. Uh, to enter the competition, it's quite simple. Email your name, address and the answer to podcast at empireonline.com and we'll get in touch with you very, very soon to give you your free tickets. Uh, if you win, of course. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us generally and get whatever's on your chest, off your chest and onto our chests, then knock yourself out. Same email address, podcast at empireonline.com and we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine and, of course, you can tweet us. Simply press the at key or as Phil, you informed me today on Twitter, mm-hmm. 
the Italians called the Atki La Cicciolina, which means small snail. It's amazing. It's I really cool. Uh, and then they type the words Empire Magazine afterward. So there we go. Okay, time for the week's movie news, dissected for your pleasure. Helen, what do you got? I have a very simple piece of news, and that is that the third instalment of The Hobbit has a name. But technically, it's the second instalment of The Hobbit that's changing its name. So, the first film will still be An Unexpected Journey. The second film is now called The Desolation of Smog. So, not the unexpected sequel? No. Okay. <laughs> They're saving that, I guess, for when they break the second film into two. The third film will be there and back again, since, of course, he doesn't come back in the second film, so it'd be crazy to keep that as the name of the second Good film. Good point. So that's the basic news there. I mean, it's not a huge surprise, because um, people had cleverly noticed that uh, Warner's had registered a couple of new sort of domain names recently. They, they registered the Desolation of Smog, and they also registered Riddles in the Dark. Mm. Now, if they'd gone with that, obviously that would have been a pretty early stop to the first film. Uh, yeah, I'm very intrigued to see where the first movie ends off. And it's interesting you say, you're saying Smog. Don't some Lord of the Rings fans say it's Smog or Smog? Or- Smog. <laughs> Smog. Smog. See, someone said this week. Someone corrected smog me when I, when I said when I said smog, the destination of smog. Someone mm. corrected me. I went, no, I think you'll find it smog. <laughs> smog. I think maybe the actress in the film have been told it's smog. I, I I I don't know. I've been saying smog since I was seven. So I will. So you're forward. right. I, w- I just know. I I will be interested. What to did see you call it before you were seven? Different. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> but we now also know that we're getting an unexpected journey this December. The December after that, so December 2013, we're getting The Desolation of Smaug. And the third film we're getting in July. That's the Bergman version right there. Exactly, right? Okay. In 2014, which means that from this point where we are in the history of the universe, which is, let me get this straight, September 2012. Correct. It'll be just under two years before I will have seen all three of The Hobbit films. Zonga. I've been waiting for this for ages. You've got to stay alive for two years. And now I've got to be alive for another two years. This is absolute bullshit. Hang in there, big guy. It's only an extra six months. Come on. You're a young man. You've still got it in you. I can't do it. Maybe. Ali, what have you got? Uh, My new story uh, also concerns a trilogy of sorts, an unexpected trilogy. Uh, This is Before Sunrises, Before Sunsets, Before Midnight, which is now what Richard Linklater is calling the third before film. What? Where did that come from? It came from Greece, because that's where they're shooting it. Um, Before Sunrise did it have a 19- thirst for knowledge? It did, yes. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing, that. Uh, in 1995 was Before Sunrise. Before Sunset was 2004. There's a nine-year gap between those two films. It's an eight-year gap um, until they started shooting Before Sunset. So it's a nice, neat one. Nine years between each. So you're moaning about two years Oh, I didn't expect films. these. I didn't expect these. You didn't expect I these. I didn't expect didn't. these. Think about the poor people who've got to stay alive for the third one of this. Well, this is kind of my point for uh, Before Midnight. It's like, I really like the way Before Sunset ended. In fact, that's one of my favourite bits of the film. It was made for under $2 million over the course of 15 days. It's not that nobody wanted it. It's just that the, the two leads and Richard Linklater did it because they wanted to do it. And it was mostly improvised. They won an Oscar nomination for a film that was almost entirely, so what did you eat for lunch today? Uh, you know, script writing. And now they're doing it again, again, just because they want to. But the final bit of that film sees Ethan Hawke's character. He was meant to be getting on a plane. He's on a, on a publicity junket in Europe. To go back to his wife and child, That's right, we should yeah. mention. Yeah. And they're in, they're in Julian Delpy's character's bedroom essentially they're flat and she has a boyfriend bear in mind yeah and a hot french boyfriend hot french boyfriend and unfortunately we have no resolution but I, I maybe that's not the right word fortunately we don't have any resolution that's what i liked about it it kind mm. of fades out and that's it mm. i almost don't want any resolution for this for these two people 
But at the same time, what we've seen when they have gone back and done these is that, you know, the, the second one was terrific just mm. because it was interesting picking up on where they'd gone in the last nine years. It wasn't where we expected or personally wanted because I'm a big old softy. Um, and so it was kind of fascinating to see where they thought it would have life would have taken them. And I'm kind of, I'll be honest, fascinated to see what's happened mm. since. So it's one of those ones where you're almost like, but it doesn't need to exist before it comes out. But when it gets here, you might be like, I'm so pleased they yeah. made that. I think it's going to be another gem. I, I people, really like the previous two films. Yeah, a lot of people do. A lot of people really care about them. And I guess it's one of those, not a franchise, but an idea that, that carries its audience with them. It reflects the sort of stage of life you're at a little yeah. bit. Quite, yeah. quite beautifully. It's not announced specifically when it's going to come out, but it is. It's a safe bet. You can expect it midway through next year. So look forward to that. Can, maybe. Uh, Phil, what do you got? Kick-Ass 2, in production, has a new Nick Fury-type character, the Colonel, mm-hmm. Jim Carrey, which mm. is exciting news for fans of the first film. Complete news for our Aaron Taylor Johnson at the Anna Corona Junker. He didn't know about this. We were down there on Tuesday, and I think a journalist told him that, that Jim Carrey was uh, was on board. <laughs> so there you go. Was he uh, pleased? Do you say Carrey or Carrey? You're saying Carrey, as in Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Yeah. Two R's in there, I call it Carrey. Yeah, it's Carrey when it's Steve Carell. I've heard people say Steve Carroll. And, Carell. And, 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 yeah, but it's, it's Steve Jim Carrell. Jim Carrey. I'm getting really it's, confused. You know, it's just, I always find it interesting that people pronounce Jim Carrey's name. Yeah, they're always pronounced well. correctly, and then they're you lot. Uh, that's all I'm saying. It's that's all, all I'm saying. But this is very interesting news, uh, and Kick-Ass 2 is, is being directed by Jeff Wadlow, and filming starts, well, probably by the time you listen to this podcast, actually. It should have got underway. It's getting underway in Toronto, isn't it? And, um, and then coming over I here think for lots of stuff. Mr. Taylor Johnson was on his way out there. He he said that he'd read the comic book. I believe you have as well, haven't you, Chris? I have, yes. And uh, he was of a similar mind, that it's got some stuff in it that you in any parallel universe couldn't get onto the big screen um, <laughs> so I'd imagine that you know this one's going to be do we think it's going to be a 15 rather than an 18 I don't know if they go for the, some of the stuff that Mark Miller and John Romita Jr. cooked up in the comic book then this will be an 18 uh, without a shadow of a doubt 36 uh, I think yeah I, I think we may be having Mark Miller on the podcast in the next couple of weeks to talk about this um, mm. but it's it's a very very violent the first half of Kick-Ass 2 the comic book is very very funny and then Red Mist comes back and he rechristens himself earmuffs the motherfucker and then he basically spends a lot of time living up that name he does some incredibly heinous stuff that that makes him very very unsympathetic and I don't know whether they can go to the dark places that the, the comic book does in, in a movie uh, especially with Christopher Mintz-Plass who's even as a bad guy someone you still like and want to hug and be your friend and, and, and come and stay with you um, so I'll, I'll be very interested to see what happens with that the comedy of that character is gone and he becomes something very, very evil uh, and ruthless. And the tenor of the of the second half changes. And it's just going to be very, very interesting to see if they, if they go for that with uh, with the sequel. It's not the mask. It is not. Well, the actually, mask uh, well, uh, the mask comic book is it, extraordinarily dark. Is it? Yeah. yeah for example, uh, Jim Carrey's character Stanley Ipkiss actually dies in the uh, in the comic book. He gets shot by his. I think, if I remember rightly, his girlfriend finds a mask and puts it on. The mask makes people insane when they wear it, and so she kills uh, Stanley Ipkiss. And they they changed it and dumbed it. Well, not dumbed it down, but they changed it and took away all the edge uh, for the uh, for the movie. Mark Miller will come and talk to us, I'm sure, in person. But I'd be surprised to see Jim Carrey committing something that was really out there on the edge. Um, it wouldn't. Uh, I I absolutely think that's yeah. that's where the, the man. <laughs> for, sorry this is a bit of a cliche but I think he lives on the edge and you know, I, I, if you look at his filmography I mean he hasn't really done an awful lot in the last few years but the last thing he really did apart from Mr. Popper's Penguins uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, I love you, Philip Morris. I mean, not many A-list stars would have committed to a comedy as as uh, out there as I love you, Philip Morris. Where you know, it's horrible and in a way that we were saying it's a brave performance because he plays a gay yeah. man and he, okay. he commits to it. And yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying he's not bold. He doesn't make bold choices. He clearly does. I'm just wondering that you know he does still have a core kind of um, constituency of to do the the Popper Penguin type films. Yeah, I and mean, if you're out there doing you know violent stuff that's going to get into the Daily Mail on a daily basis, like Kick-Ass 2, no doubt, probably will. Um, mm. That's a different call. I'm not saying he won't, I'm just, I'd just be interested. Really. On the other hand, I mean, check out the difference between the comic book of Wanted and the, the film of Wanted. You know, there's, there's ways to take inspiration, as it were, from the, from the comic and then mm. just do something kind of oh, different. Oh yeah, Wanted's completely different. Completely, completely different. massively yeah. different. So I'm not saying they'll make that degree of change to it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they go for something that's still edgy, still violent, still really exciting, but probably not as full on as the comic currently mm, I'd be is. interested to see how they can recreate the, the C-word scene moment in the second film. Very, very good point. And uh, interesting enough, Nick Cage apparently has been confirmed as being in the film. I, I keep reading his name on the cast list. I'm like, how? Must be a flashback, yeah, surely. Not but Nick Cave. Not Nick Cave, no. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, but the first movie is very, very dark in, in very, very many places and still manages to be hilarious and entertaining. So who knows, maybe this one will do that as well. Thanks, guys. Uh, coming up, Nick Cave and John Hillcoat drop in to talk about their latest knockabout sex comedy, Lawless. Australian director John Hillcoat and the legendary Australian singer-songwriter Nick Chuckles Cave have worked together for donkey's years, uh, not only on videos for Cave's work, but on actual films. Cave wrote the screenplay for Hillcoat's Ghosts of the Civil Dead in 1988, and then more notably the script for the brilliant Aussie western The Proposition. Now they're working together again on Lawless, a Prohibition-era gangster flick starring Shia LaBeouf, Tom Hardy, Gary Oldman, Jessica Chastain, Mia Wasikowska, Jason Clark and Guy Pearce, hell of a cast. Uh, they popped into the pop booth early this week to talk to Phil and Ali about all manner of things, starting with Tom Hardy's cardigan. By the way, the aforementioned soundboard problem that I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, that kind of put pay to this interview, so uh, the sound quality is not that great, but please do stick with it. It's good stuff. Okay, well, um, we're really very chuffed to welcome to the Empire Podcast booth, the director and screenwriter of Lawless, John Hilker and Nick Cave. It's a great pleasure to have you guys here. Thank you for coming Thank in. Thank you. Thank you. Starting in a slightly unusual place, but are you are you guys aware that you've you've kind of kicked off a bit of a cultural phenomenon in the shape of the Tom Hardy cardigan, as it's now known the Hardigan? I was going to say that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> was that in your mind in the script? Um, look, I didn't do the costumes. So I think Tom, I, th- I don't know, did Tom or Margot, the, the, the costume designer, create that? I don't know. Uh, it, it actually uh, it came largely from Tom. She, she did have an outfit for him, but uh, it morphed into the Hardigan. It was also a kind of long pipe that he wanted to smoke, but we had to wrestle that one off him. Um, the old granny the old sage grandma on the yeah. yeah he's the middle brother but in a way he's the he, he compares himself to like a matriarch almost rather than a patriarch of the family he, he sort of describes himself as a bit of a mum figure yeah a crazy mother hen you don't want to get on the bad side of granny well look he's a, he's um, a really great actor and part of that is his process of going around with his with his characters and I mean he does uh, approach his characters from a very different point of view and and sometimes a kind of mystifying point of view and there was things that were going on in the shooting of it and in the rehearsals that were were 
flat out bizarre. Can you give us an example? Well, just just in in his reference points and what he was trying to do, and um, that he that he wanted to play this character like an old lesbian. Who was saying, and uh, at some point he was saying he wanted to play the he wanted to play the play the character based on the the grandmother in the cartoon Tweety Pie. Really? You know that? Yeah, yeah. And the these these were um, genuine references for him. So. You know, this can be quite alarming to hear, you know, this kind of stuff. But, you know, he really had a good understanding of exactly what he wanted, that that he was a matriarch. He was the mm. mother of looking after this family, that he was violent, but his but his violent nature was very much a pragmatic, necessary adjunct to being a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when Maggie... This very beautiful woman from Chicago comes and 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 uh, to to work in in uh, Blackwater Station that it, where he runs his operation. She's not seen as a sort of sexual figure for him, but as another mother trying to usurp his position. And so he treats her with a great amount of distrust. And I mean, eventually they fall in love and all of that sort of stuff. But a lot of this stuff was, you know, Tom's kind of reading of this particular character. So he's an extraordinary actor. I wanted to ask you about Shia LaBeouf because I understand that he was, he's been on board the project since, since almost its inception. But he, he claims to have knocked out Tom Hardy on set. Is that true? Well, there there was a little tussle. I wonder if off of set, not on set, but off set. Well, it was. Well, that, that, scandal. That, that's just brothers scandal. being brothers. I mean, that's yeah. all part of the characters being the characters. Absolutely, there was that, uh, and Shia also um, uh, carved um, a little love message on into um, Mia's door. Well, um, he 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 basically uh, but, uh, he, he was trying to court her, and uh, in in a uh, in a sort of conceptual kind of way. I don't think I think he was just trying to get into a pan. <laughs> um, I could be wrong. Oh, yeah, this could cause all sorts of problems. But you know, but there's no. I mean, there's a mirroring often with uh, um, actually with actors that are really committed, and and it's a very intense process. They often start to mimic. And mirror the roles that they're uh, playing off off screen as yeah. well as on screen. Did you have conscious bonding sessions with the three brothers to, to kind of? We had regular group therapy, and, and we, <laughs> we kind of you know shared moonshine in the meetings. Right, circle jerks. Yeah. <laughs> all classic, you know, the one one of uh, directing is is all of that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, going back to the origin, it's a tough process for you guys in terms of pitching it to the big studios in Hollywood and being told that this isn't the kind of film we're making, which seems really weird because this is exactly the sort of film that was people were queuing around the block for a few decades, you know, decades back. And now they're saying it's not a franchise, it's not a comedy, therefore we can't fund it. And it's in the sticks, the boondocks. Yeah, at least they're honest about it, though. They, they literally said that. They, 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 literally they, they are honest yeah. about their own lack of imagination. <laughs> they all realize they have no imagination. Um, so do you have everyone to Everyone else realizes that. It, it's it's uh, unfortunately the marketing, marketing over the last uh, decade and a half has, has uh, been on the increase and infiltrated uh, a lot of areas like filmmaking where there's all this data and information and processing the information and 
now even with scripts there's you know they talk about the the market and the audience before even formulating the script so it's like the cart is before the horse you know it's it's all and it never used to be like that i mean film's always been a tricky balance between commerce and art and and the costs you know there are serious costs involved in mm-hmm. making a film now um but yeah, I think what's happened is the franchise is really about just uh, an easy way, a business model of uh, a pre-existing market mm. that they tap into. So it's yeah. all a huge marketing exercise. If you went to them and said, we've got an idea for Lawless 2 and we've got some tie-in moonshine, <laughs> would that have changed there, do you think? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the other irony, though, is because if, you know, if this all pans out well they'll say, oh, great, you know, we want something just like that. Yeah. And it's uh, yeah. the fact that it was uh, the big uh, challenge on this one was that it was um, rural instead of city. We had offers, you know, they did certain, some companies said, we'll, um, make, uh, we'll make it if you set it in a city. It's, mm. yeah. It's, that would be difficult though, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's a... Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They'd make it if you make it a normal, an ordinary gangster film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, prob- the problem is that the country or the world, but it, certainly in America, it's going, you know, economically it was, it is and certainly was going down the toilet. And when John was trying to get this film off the ground, it's a d- depression era film. And they're like, these are just, these, these are yeah. the films we don't want at this moment. Yeah. And also, it's too depressing. And the whole, also, you know, the cities just continually expand, and and the rural areas are, you know, are, yeah. are uh, yeah. really impoverished. Uh, mm. You know, for me, it was a great um, contrast to to the, you know, the gnarly, pretty <laughs> brutal. I mean, violence. I think people were had seen the road, mm. they'd seen the proposition, they'd realised that john hillcote employs these great actors and they all look like shit they're dirty they smell they mumble all the rest of it (laughs) and so they didn't want the same thing happening with the kind of bunch of the new a-listers john actually had to find photos right of depression era photos where people looked good (laughs) (laughs) and colorful no when you clean isn't that right photoshop you had all these historical photos, Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. Guy Pierce is sporting extraordinary physical um, aesthetic. And I gather that he sent you a picture of himself without his eyebrows and then said, here is what I want to look yeah, like. He said that actually quite early on. <laughs> Was it just shaved them off? That he would spend like a few months walking around with no eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, he, he, sent, he sent a photo... Um, it just sort of pinged up on my iPhone, and it was it was this utter kind of transformation um, with the hair and all of that sort of stuff, and it, it was genuinely ter- terrifying. It's hugely helpful in the in in creating that character. I mean, he's he's amazing like that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, His characters frightening to to us but especially frightening to the bonjour and brothers and all the people from because they've never seen like him he's like the sort of the hellish extreme of the urban sophisticate and he wears perfume i just wondered did did guy actually wear perfume when he was he did yeah wow and he had so much hair product in what did he smell him? like you could smell him from mm. what, the, you know how, what did he smell like way. really <laughs> guy's coming and his whole thing was that he was coming to the country and the country stunk yeah you know, that was his 
but that it that not only did it look awful and that like there were cows and whatever it also smelt and everybody else smelt and all of that sort of stuff and he didn't you know so his character doesn't want to be touched he doesn't want to be infected by the rural world right you know, he's and a city guy the gloves uh, yeah, he's a sophisticated yes. city guy. So yeah, perfume. Yeah, yeah. Found it out. and and he was itching to play something uh, more explosive in that kind of Cagney tradition, since it's always been you know so restrained. We probably have to wrap up in the nearest future, but I just wondered um, what's if you've got ideas for what next. Are you talking about partnering up again, and, and also? <clears throat> Cormac McCarthy, did you have have you had conversations with him about material since the road? Oh, Cormac May wrote a script. script yeah. Yes, a yeah, yeah. film which which Ridley Scott's doing. But uh, I, uh, yeah, no, I'd I'd love to uh, make Blood Meridian one day. Yeah, I don't want to write that. I'm not going to be the guy who fucks up Blood Meridian. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so, thank okay. you very much, guys. All right, thanks. really appreciate thank it. You. Good guys, eh, Phil? A very intimidating man, Nick Cave, uh, as people may have noticed listening through to that. There's not a lot of me, because I'm mainly cowering the corner, going, <laughs> oh, I'm going to get through this, it's going to be fine. You um, were, and you were just sellotaping our mic to the desk to make sure that the technological problem didn't re-emerge. get any worse. No. Yeah, it, it was good. I really enjoyed being in his presence, but I did think of him as somebody I would not like to get into an argument with. No, he's a, he is an intimidating guy. But we're intimidating guys, so yeah, you know, in your own in a way, way yes. in a way, it balanced out. In another way, it was a disaster for us personally. Because he's very <laughs> scary, but no, he's not scary. That's unfair. But he and John Hilker we've obviously been working together for a long time and have a sort of a deeper, profounder kind of bond creatively. But I had lots of really interesting things to say about the film. Mm. Um, I think probably possibly more at times than the film itself, which I was slightly disappointed by. This is a tale, as you've heard, of three brothers who were moonshine bootleggers in the 1930s, Virginia, I think it was 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, and their war against the evil deputy, and Guy Pierce is an evil deputy in this one, uh, who's determined to stop them. And it's obviously more complicated than that, but that's the through line. Uh, so, hmm. what do we make of this one? What was fascinating about it for me was that it, it was it sort of took us to a world that we haven't really been to before very often in cinema. I think we might have mentioned in the interview, it felt like it was taking place over the hillside from The Untouchables or from a Jimmy Cagney film, from those old 20s gangsters. These are the guys providing the liquor for the big city gangsters, here mm-hmm. played by Gary Oldman. But in Microcosm, Gary Oldman is a good example. He's great in it, but he's just he's very peripheral. And there's a lot of peripheral characters, a lot of characters that aren't particularly well served by the script. The eldest of the three Bonjuran brothers is an interesting character. He's scarred by his experiences of war. He's a, but he's reduced to being this kind of violent pisshead, basically. Mm, he's a so dog. you know, and, and again, he's another one. There's too many of those characters where there should be more delineation of some of these guys around. You left to Tom Hardy, who's fairly taciturn in this. He plays the, the you know, great cardigans. I think love I think, the cardigan. I think it's pretty much one cardigan the whole yeah. way through. It's okay, great cardigan. Fairly taciturn, maybe the understatement of the year. When he says, "He's Bane, Bane-like in his." No, in his, ba- Bane, Bane could not stop talking. Yeah, Bane could not stop. He could, honestly couldn't shut the man up. <laughs> but uh, a forest in this movie, the Tom Hardy character. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. renowned. He just grunts constantly, well, and which gets to the crux of it for me, which is that you're left with Shia LaBeouf on an arc to become cocky Shia LaBeouf, and I personally have had my kind of. That's Transformers. I'm not, I'm not yeah. rushing out to see that again. 
really, oh, in a I lot of ways. I, I actually quite liked it. I thought that um, I think Hardy doesn't have to say much to be pretty magnetic on screen and not in a you know, pervy way. I think he's just, he's got charisma and I think that comes across really well. He's very much the anchor of the piece. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf, I mean, I, th- I don't think we're, you're meant to be particularly rooting for him as he gets cockier and cockier. And in fact, what it, the, the effect of that those scenes for me was to make me feel more and more dread basically, because I was just like, oh, no, this is this is not a good idea. He shouldn't be doing this. This is just drawing attention to him. It's all going to go horribly wrong. And, you know, spoiler, there's a bit of horribly wrongness um, involved. So mm-hmm. I, I, I find that quite effective. And I, I like Jessica Chastain. I just felt like there wasn't maybe quite enough of her. I would agree that some characters do get a little bit underserved by the script. I would also say that, by the way, if you've seen the trailer and you've seen Gary Oldman in the trailer, that's pretty much his appearances in the film. So don't go in expecting a whole lot more Gary Oldman. He's great in it, but he's barely there. It's I slightly really... depart from our review on the, on Guy Pearce. I think we gave him a bit of a, his character a bit of a, a going over in the review. But I actually quite like I quite like the fact that he's a slightly cartoony outsider. Through the eyes of the Bondurants, he's this kind of other with his shaved eyebrows and his ridiculous broad cream dapper down hair. He, he reminded me and in a weird a, way of a feminine and scary and asexual and and just yeah. kind of alien and. He, I think, maybe brought a bit of that dread, which I wasn't really feeling otherwise, uh, in the in the in the kind of dramatic machinery of the film. But you know, this, they talked about it in in the interview that they wanted to make it kind of analogous with our economic problems now, a depression era thing where crime pays, etc. And the superhero of the the outlaws and that stuff's interesting. But you know, they could have could have been a bit more detailed. But a beautiful looking film. Yeah, it looks mm. great, and uh, there's some very very good sequences in it. And it's it's quite a violent film, so do be prepared for that. You know and what's interesting? Very very gruesome. Sequences. We discovered was that um, that the, the, there's some some car chasing in it. They soup up their old anthill mob style cars, and uh, to do the to do the the moonshine runs to the big city. And we discovered that was the beginning of NASCAR racing. That's how it all started. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> little little did we know. Excellent. That may not make the final cut because it's getting more interesting for me. <laughs> don't don't drink and dive, folks. <laughs> no, exactly. No, but I, yeah, exactly. I, I I've I've seen it twice now, and I thought you know, this is a, a perfectly fine movie. It's, it's well acted. It's very handsomely mounted. It's got, uh, you know, as I said, some some good action sequences. But it's not an action movie, mm. uh, and it's it's a it's a decent character piece. I don't think it's as good as the road or the proposition, but. It's mm. absolutely fine, and given the uh, the the tumultuous road to the screen that it's had, it's turned out it's turned out pretty yeah, well. I go along with that. Um, we had Carl Urban on last week's podcast to promote Dread or Dread 3D, as the insistent calling it. It's the return of Mega Cities One, biggest bastard who's busting heads, ripping heads. I went very Northern Irish, didn't I? You did a wee bit. I went. I went really Northern Irish. So the Thank result of ripping biggest, heads. Biggest bastard, uh, busting heads, ripping heads, taking heads in a stripped-down movie. As he's dread in a rookie played by Olivia Thirlby, uh, trapped in a 200-story apartment block with a whole bunch of bad guys who want to make them dead. Uh, so, what did we make of this one? I really enjoyed this, actually, I have to say. I mean, it does suffer a little bit by the fact that, you know, a film made on a different continent at the same time turned out brilliantly, which is The Raid, yeah. uh, with the same kind of plot. So, yeah. um, but this one, I, th- I think, is a really... You know, there was no way to avoid that. Nobody knew it about each other when they made them. But I think this is a really good Dread story. This is kind of... The interesting thing about this is that this is kind of portrayed as just an, a fairly normal day, a fairly average day in Dredd's life. It's a really good introduction to the character to do it that way and not have him facing some world-threatening, you know, event, um, but have him essentially just doing what he does because this is a guy who is judge, jury and executioner 
all in one handy post-apocalyptic package. Mm. And you've got Carl Urban as, you know, just looking really, really tough and importantly, keeping his helmet on mm-hmm. the whole way through, um, you know, and, and just bringing the kind of the dread we've seen in the comics pretty much to the screen, which I think is a is a good thing. I'm not saying it's flawless or anything, but I think it's a heck of a big step up from the last attempt at this uh, character. I was just going to echo Helen's sentiments. I wasn't expecting much from this film, and I don't want to do it down by saying that I really wasn't expecting anything at all. And I sat down and was blown away. It was visceral, it was violent, very violent. I think I should underline that. Oh, yes, hugely violent. Exciting, admittedly quite claustrophobic, and you could see that the budget was creaking sometimes, but really good fun and I am not a Dread fan I haven't read the comics it it doesn't mean anything to me and I want people who listen to this podcast to know that you don't have to know Dread this doesn't have to be a big part of your life you don't even have to be aware of his catchphrases it's a good film and to see an 18 movie we're talking about kick-ass superhero film that really leaves a mark I think this does yeah I recommend it very much yeah I mean I uh, I agree It's 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 a strange one for me because I wrote the Empire Review (laughs) <laughs> and it, ha- it has a three-star rating on there. And in all honesty, uh, with the benefit of hindsight and having a chance to think about it and see it a second time, uh, it's probably a four. But it's very, very good. Urban is excellent. Olivia Thurlby is great. And I love the way that Lena Headey, who's the uh, the bad guy in this, uh, is so yeah, so understated and so yeah. chilling. Uh, she doesn't shout. She doesn't raise her voice at any point, And she just freezes your blood and she's great and the, the location is used very very well uh, I like some of the nice little sci-fi touches as we said it's ultra violent if you want to mm. see what bullets can do to the human body in, in ultra ultra slow-mo then this is a movie for you I would say it does lack momentum uh, I think it peaks with uh, a big set piece in the second act and then after that it's not so good but uh, watching Dread the Dread I grew up reading uh, actually on the big screen once and for all is great, and if it mm. does make enough money to have a sequel, then I'd love to see it. I think it's going to be really interesting if, if this one makes money, and I would almost encourage people to go see it almost for that, just because mm. I'm really intrigued to see what they do next, because I think they can go bigger and badder. So self-contained, it's in one apartment block in a very brief car chase that we alluded to with the Carl Urban interview. Yeah, I cannot wait to see what they do with Mega City One. I'm genuinely very, very excited about it. There's so much potential here. Absolutely. And I'd love to see what they can do in this universe uh, with Judge Death, mm. if that ever happens. Because uh, I know that's where I think they're maybe going with maybe a trilogy. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. So it's three stars. Mm. It's a high three there. Uh, okay, so that's Dread. Uh, next up is, is perhaps Complete Antithesis, which is uh, <laughs> Anna Karenina. as Because yes. uh, I was I having problems pronouncing it and Helen... As I did at the beginning of the podcast, you told me to sing it, and that helps. Well, yeah, I've, I I don't know why, but I've been singing it to the tune of La Donna e Mobile, which is... Uh, Haven't we all? I know, but for some reason, I can't, I couldn't get it out of my head for about a week, and I was going around saying, singing Anna Karenina. You have been doing that all week, Anna actually. Yeah. I, can't, I can't stop. Anyway, but it helps <laughs> you remember how to pronounce her name, so there you go. Yeah, it is. Well, this is Joel Ryan's adaptation of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And it may be the year's boldest gamble because at, at the last minute he was, he'd was scouted locations. He was going to shoot this as a huge epic. And at the last minute, I think there might have been some budget constraints, but also maybe him, you know, thinking, ah, I could do something that's never been done, done before. He, he, t- he sets it inside a theatre. Yeah, he told the story about going to look at um, locations around the UK, big stately homes, and somebody saying, oh, you're bringing that Kira around for, again. <laughs> he was just like, no, I'm not going to go back and do this all <laughs> over again. I have to do something new. So, Helen, what's this about? And, uh, and should we see it? So this is the adaptation of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, of course. It's the story of uh, Russian society, 19th century. Um, Kira Knightley is the titular 
Anna, um, who's married to Jude Law's very respectable, very well-regarded, very noble public servant. Um, and all seems well with her life. You know, she's off kind of counselling her brother, Matthew McFadgen, her former Mr Darcy, and his wife. You know, she loves her son. She seems happy with her husband. Everything seems fine. And then Erin Taylor-Johnson comes along as Count Vronsky, and there's just an immediate spark between the two of them. And there's a question of what do we do? Because it is at that point, it's a matter of throwing away everything in your life for love or, you know, sticking with where you are. And, uh, well, they make they go one way, not the other, let's say, and things get a bit complicated. Um, I should also mention that um, Donald Gleason's in it um, as uh, Levin? Levin. 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 Who's the young aristocratic would-be farmer, basically. You know, Tolstoy novels always include a lot of discussion of Russian agriculture. Um, it's what genuinely, it's what makes them so thick. Basically, War and Peace is essentially the archers with Napoleon in They're the They're manuals, essentially. Yeah, they can, well, they're kind of tracked on how this change Russian farming. But anyway, so Levin represents the farming bit of the story, um, but uh, it's really very much about Keira Knightley and Aaron Taylor Johnson. And the stylistic flourishes of Joe Wright, of course. And the stylistic flourishes of Joe Wright, who, you know, Keira Knightley's son, as far as I'm concerned, all of her best work with. And the whole thing, yeah, is set within a theatre, more or less. Some scenes it's very obvious, some scenes it's barely visible, um, which I think if you go back and sort of dissect the film on a, a couple of viewings, that, that will be significant. Um but it's it's kind of effective. It, t- it took me about probably 10, 15 minutes to get used to it. I find mm. it very off-putting in the first little bit of the film. And he really gives it to you in the first 10 minutes. Yes, it's really, it's, it's at its most theatrical is mm. what Ali means. Chris, stop looking shocked. In the first 10 minutes, that's when it's really, really very theatrical. It's almost like choreography, mm. the way people are moving between each other. Um, but it, it kind of comes and goes in terms of its impact as you go on. And you do get used to it. And it, it does kind of add to this sense of everybody always watching watching you. There is a natural kind of gag they're doing here, which is Russian society in St. Petersburg and Moscow. It's like a theatre. It's like a play. All the world's a stage. Ha ha ha. And Levin, agriculture man, his stuff is done out in the sticks. Yes, it's the one bit. Those are the bits where you see outside. And those moments are are really beautiful. You almost savour the kind of Russian sunsets and him scything uh, the grain. I loved him, Mm. uh, Donald Gleeson. Who's also in Dread. He's in everything. Yeah, everywhere. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's very good in Dread. Mm. And Shadow Dancer. He's having a good week. But yeah, I... I thought visually it was beautiful. I was blown away by just what he was doing with this this setup. He's done. I love seeing directors do this when they they have a problem, they're lacking money, or they can't go to this certain location, but they make that. Yeah, it's virtue. true. I what I was surprised by was that Tom Stoppard's script didn't really change. He just kind of reapplied it and had this brainwave and called up his cast who'd been along for the ride from the beginning and said, "Look, I'm doing something completely different. It's going to be quite theatrical." Which must be interesting because actors love to do theatre because it's so fast-paced compared to filmmaking. But putting them in that environment and putting us in that environment, making us do a bit more work as an audience. And I feel so strongly about this film because despite its many flaws, it's Mm. trying to do something that I haven't really seen before. There's Mm. a bit of Synecdoche, New York, which... You know, Charlie Kaufman's film, which Joe Wright is acknowledged as an inspiration. There's bits of Powell and Pressburger. There's bits of Melier and Lumiere and all of that stuff in there. And it's very beautiful to look at. If there's been criticism of it, it's that maybe its emotional core is not as resounding, should we say, as it could have been. I think that's fair. Kira mm. Knightley maybe doesn't quite deliver the impact of Anna know. Karenina's she was, she was final good moment. I thought, she was I, thought, good, yeah. I thought I would say if there was a, a, a problem, mm. it would be with more with Aaron Taylor-Johnson's character. Um, not to discredit his performance, but 
the Vronsky character maybe is just a little bit shallow and you can't really understand why she would put herself into this lion's den that she does when she when she goes starts to see him you know there's scenes where everyone in society is just staring at her um and you could just don't, I don't really get that particularly from it but maybe someone a little older would have worked slightly better I'm not sure what it is <clears throat> Ryan Gosling Maybe, yeah. I could, that, I could maybe see that. that sort the of ladies do that. love Ryan Gosling. So. He's got, I've got, I'll wait five minutes. <laughs> I don't carry a gun, but I've got, you know, a bottle of champagne and ice. I could get that. This didn't quite, and but they're good in it. Jude Law's great in it. Kira Knightley's really good in it. Matthew McFadden plays the kind of comic-y, mm. Falstaff-y type character. He's great in it. It's great performances, but visually it's just so... Fresh, and I love that. And we sit here so so many weeks and say, "Oh, you know, this film. I feel like I've seen it before. I haven't seen this film before, and I'll forgive it anything for that." Um, I have just realised in talking about this, this would be the perfect double bill with Love and Death by Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's a very similar yeah, so world, true. Russian epic. It's thing. So true. There is one moment where Anna is uh, fanning herself with her fan. <laughs> you want to see Woody Allen cut away, and you do want to cut away to Woody Allen with <laughs> a knife so going. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's so true. But you know, it's it's funny because you see these films, and they always say about Hamlet. You know, it's been done before, but it can sustain so many takes. Mm. And this is a great example of a film that can sustain so many takes. Yeah. And I think we reviewed Take This Waltz not long ago, the Sarah Poli film. That's kind of Anna Kretner as well, in a way. It is a story that repeats and repeats and repeats. And it is kind of like <clears throat> proto-feminist, I guess. The beginning yeah, of that. Well, I think it, I, what I would say is it's very humanist. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Tolstoy himself saw it as more of a moral thing. But what comes across is his immense sympathy for and empathy with characters who are making horrendous choices uh, and I think that that's what really really comes across uh, here because I think the film again has that same kind of empathy and mm. sympathy for people who are just doing the wrong thing throughout. It uh, does. By, by the way this is a cinema watch if you are mm. considering watching this Definitely. and go well I'll just wait for the DVD I Please really hope don't. people see it at the very least because we need audiences for these sorts of films so people try new stuff I think this feels like to me an antidote to studio by you know filmmaking by committee and by studio balance sheet it's like this is something that's different and I love it for that but at the same time I don't see this as like an art house movie this feels pretty mainstream to me no exactly I just don't want you to put people off with your art house reputation (laughs) you know from the kiss of death (laughs) oh god no it's not at all it feels it's a big movie it's got big big uh, vision and yeah. beautiful cinematography and a great, you know, Joe Wright loves his set piece, doesn't he? And it's got a great central ball scene, which is dazzling. Mm. We gave that one four stars. We did, yes. Uh, Phil, sound, you, you sound like you, you loved it. You sound like you had a five. I don't head. think, no, I know it, no? it's got flaws. I just, I've I never just, seen you so impassioned about a film. This is amazing. Have you not? No, no never. I get, I get pretty impassioned about films. I just, yeah, this one really, like, I don't know, it was beautiful. Yeah, he's, it was he's never beautiful. been this passionate about an English language film. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I he threatened to break into Russian at any second. He's just loving it. He's constantly on edge. Um, so that we give that four stars. So that's the film of the week by default. Would you say Dread or Anna Karenina? Horses for courses. I've said that all the time. But it depends on what movie you like. If you like the idea of somebody's head being smashed through a glass pane. Anna Karenina. There we go. Hey. Uh, we do have one more film though. Hold off. Because oh. you never know. I do know, actually. It's That's My Boy, which is a new Adam Sandler film. And the, yeah, I gave it three. And the reason I gave it three is because it's actually a return to form for Adam Sandler. 
and it's been given a kick in in the States, uh, mainly because I think people make their minds up about Adam Sandler movies before they go in. I know I've done it myself. Mm. I hated this last couple. He's not, he doesn't seem to be trying anymore. He seems to be making movies that primarily are movies that were, you know, he would, his character would have made in Funny People. Mm. And this is kind of one of those movies, but because it's an R-rated film, he plays a, a guy who had a kid with his teacher when he was 15 years old, and then 25 years later, he needs some money, so he goes back into the kid's life, just as the kid, who's played by Andy Samberg, is getting married. Uh, but this film, uh, because it's R-rated, because he's actually really going out there in terms of you know gross out humor it works because there are some genuinely funny jokes and it goes into some genuinely dark and inventive places that i don't think i was expecting from an adam sandler film there are some genuine gags that made me laugh despite the fact there's, there's obviously crass stuff there are jokes that fall flat there are jokes that die there's the usual adam sandler uh motifs and themes that run throughout all his movies and it does it still has a feel of i've just got some mates together and have made a film but it made me laugh more than any film of his has made me laugh in years. So, uh, therefore, I gave it three stars. I'm very glad to hear you say that, and I know you're not the only person to say that. I've seen quite a few begrudging reviews going, I was expecting to hate this, and I didn't. Honestly, I, I, I love uh, Happy Gilmore. I, I love uh, The Wedding Singer. I, mm. I even have a soft spot for Little Nicky. I loved all his early all early movies, but lately the man's been phoning it in uh, long distance. I mean, growing up is one of the worst movie experiences I can I can possibly remember. Jack and Jill is dreadful. Just go with it. It's dreadful. I was expecting another movie on along those lines, and it surprised me. It made me laugh, genuinely laugh. Well, believe it or not, I'm probably going to see it this weekend just to test your theory. I have very, very fond memories of uh, Happy Gilmore, and I quote it more than I care to admit. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, again, it's not a great film. It's very clumsily made, as most Sandler comedies are, but it is it is quite funny. And the characters are quite uh, quite endearing in the story. I laugh quite a lot in Zohan. Made me laugh. Another one. Another great one, yeah. Especially John Turturro. Maybe great's the wrong word, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a film. It's a film that exists. We're not going to be troubling the Titan Sound top yeah. ten anytime soon. Yeah, <laughs> but it might be on the fringes of the forties. We, so we should fix that vote and get it in there. We should do. We should do. Also, out this week, we've the decent thriller *A Night in the Woods* uh, and the LCD sound system swan song documentary *Shut Up and Play the Hits*. And Phil, you you like this one? I didn't. I like LCD sound system's music. I would say it's not. You, you kind of do need to be an LCD sound system fan for it. it okay. The concert stuff is great, though. Okay, both of those were given three stars, uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Paranorman directors Sam Fell and Chris Butler and we'll discuss that and the Sweeney and Premium Rush and oh so, so much more. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Farewell. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye now. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>